0: professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm
1: Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Dwight Goins. Dwight is an industry luminary focused on artificial intelligence, computer vision, machine learning, augmented and mixed reality, IoT, and emerging user experiences. Welcome, Dwight. Thank you. Thank you. One thing we we uh, have all our guests do is uh, kind of explain... Uh, you know, where they came from, how they got into the industry. Uh, Could you do that for us? Just let us know, you know, where you started in industry and and kind of your path to where you are now.
2: So I'm from the School of Hard Knocks. Um, Originally, I I was told to get into this by my godfather. He, maybe about over 20 years ago, maybe more like 1996, I believe it was, uh, he said, you should go into computer programming. I was like, and what was interesting was was that I had just passed my first Microsoft exam in the IT, you know, building computers and stuff, getting, you know, your A-plus cert and all that stuff, right? And I had just passed the Windows NT networking exam or something like that. And I was full-fledged to go hardware, right? Because I was like, hardware, we could do this, right? And I even had started a business building computers together way back then, I had, you know, I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had stopped for a second to start this because this was during the, the dot com years where everybody was trying to start something out of their garage and, 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 and take it somewhere. And my godfather said, Yeah, 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 that hardware stuff, ah, go computer programming. <laughs> and I went into development and I picked up a book on uh, C development, picked it up fairly quickly, at least I'd like to think I did. And from there, it just kind of took off. I worked at the Air Force Base in Warner Robins, Georgia for a minute. And then eventually I moved on and worked with HP as a Microsoft education consultant. As I was doing these development tasks, I was going out and getting more Microsoft certifications. And eventually I got my MCSD in both C and Visual Basic. And eventually um, I became a trainer, Microsoft certified trainer. Being a HP employee, I met a lot of Microsoft partners. And so it opened my eyes up to the whole independent contractor status, Uh, because prior to that, I had been working, you know, regular nine to five W-2 positions and kind of doing that thing. And then I realized, hey, there's way more money in this starting my own business and just kind of doing the independent contractor role. When I left HP, I joined um, Microsoft as an independent contractor, they flew me to more HP facilities all around the world. (laughs) And then, you know, I was offered a full-time position with the company that I was contracting with. And I was kind of like, I don't know. Nah, I like my independent role. I like my life as, you know. And so, you know, that didn't work out. But I stayed with them for another year or two after that. And then they said, okay, we're about to get bought out. You missed it. But if you want to come on, you know, we'll give you a nice package, whatever. So then that's when I jumped on.
0: Well, it sounds like you've, you've done some amazing things and been involved with some amazing work and, and working with a variety of different large organizations. Just the, the bullet points in, in your bio, artificial intelligence, computer vision, machine learning, augmented mixed reality, IoT, and et cetera seems like a lot of what all those things have in common is, is data. It seems like a lot of applications, a lot of development these days, in order for a product to work, it either is using data, utilizing data or collecting data. Is, is that what you see and do you see that correlation in the history of your, your tenure?
2: Yes. Um, You know, every position and role that I've taken on as independent to W-2 employee to you know developer to trainer, there were always data points and there was always data sets that you needed to work on. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the mixed reality and IoT because out of the mixed reality and IoT, all the the roles and jobs that I've had had nothing to do with mixed reality and IoT. The mixed reality and IoT came in um, because of my volunteer work and because of my side jobs, and actually, what I actually became a Microsoft MVP in—it right? was in that I became an MVP in BizTalk initially back in the early 2000s, and then from BizTalk, I transitioned over to the Connect. And the reason why I transitioned over to the Connect—I had gone to a um, a hackathon that Microsoft held 2012 this hackathon was all about the connect, right? And just what can you build with the connect? And I was just going, cause I was interested and I had a couple of ideas. They said, Hey, you have 24 hours to come up with an idea you could do with the connect. And I just came up with an idea to say, Hey, I wonder if you can do like this thing called lie to me. Anybody ever see that TV show? It was called lie to me. And it was this doctor who could read the small miniature expressions in your face to determine if a person was telling a lie or not, right? And they had this whole series of shows based off of this one doctor who can read if a person was lying or not. And so I didn't know that this was a real science. I just came up with the idea. Let me just build an example with the Kinect because the Kinect could read your face, right? And so I built a thing that Basically, it's an app that just determined how many times you would touch your face with your hands, how many times you would would blink, how many times you might smirk or, you know, make these weird facial expressions. It was very simple, right? Really easy to determine, right? No real math or anything. Just count how many times a person blinks or how many times their hand touches their face, right? what I did was I just read a bunch of um, what you call uh, base control questions to get like just a different feel of what a person would do and then I um, asked a bunch of ridiculous questions to see how they would react right and it were random questions and it recorded both scenarios and then generated a report that said oh he touched his face five times in the base control but he touched his face 20 times in the ridiculous section question right <laughs> and then it had a, a picture of Pinocchio so every time the the system thought that the person was lying the Pinocchio animation would grow his nose and come back. Kind of funny. (laughs) And um, so at the time, um, Ben Lowry, he was the program manager for the Connect for Windows team at Microsoft at the time. He was like, oh man, that's great. That's great. He came to me on the side. He said that they had a doctor just reach out to them like a month prior. You remember that thing you did at the hackathon? These doctors really want to do that with our device can you have a talk with them and, and further this out? So I had a a call, a conference call with a couple of doctors, and I kid you not, one of the doctors was the um, actual doctor who consulted on the Lie to Me program, <laughs> and it blew me away. And so the doctors were explaining it to me, and they even gave me a book. They sent me to Berkeley to do some training on it and get certified and facts and it became a real project, right, that we actually implemented and it's still running to some extent today at a couple of universities for um, different, um, different medical universities as a, a trial and learning experience to help teach doctors how to to deal with patients. So it's, it's pretty deep. So, you know, I bring it back to the data points because I think that's where, where the interest lies. There was a meeting that I was involved in and one of the uh, leaders or conference members, the person who was actually giving, giving out information in that meeting, suggested that we go get a book on machine learning. This was back in 2012. And at that time, machine learning had been out for you a know, number of decades, but it definitely wasn't hype. <laughs> it wasn't even something to mention. It was like, oh, that's a geek thing. And this person was like, here's the book, here's the author, here's the video, Go do it. And it was a book from Caltech. It was, you know, from a a professor from Caltech who was kind of one of the, you know, early known researchers in this idea of machine learning. The name of the book is Learning from Data. The first chapter starts off with, you gotta have data. Once you have the data, you can't make any assumptions about the data because the minute you make an assumption about the data, you've already failed in trying to teach the computer something. Because the minute you prejudice the system then the system is going to be biased toward thinking only about bicycles over the last three months. But what if the hidden piece of data in that bicycles over the last three months is it has nothing to do with bicycles, but it has everything to do with metal that was purchased over the past year? That's what you learn. You start dealing with this idea of data that takes you down this whole path of data engineering and and artificial intelligence and what that all means. And it opens up a whole new realm of capabilities, including a different new set of roles and responsibilities.
0: Yeah, and it, it seems like data has always been a part of any sizable application, any, any application of any size, whether it's small or large. Uh, I've primarily been a line of business application developer, so data was a consequence of an application. It was, we were collecting data, we were reporting on data, we were assembling data but but it's it seems like in more recent years, there's a, a bigger push to understand data and to figure out what the data is telling us. Last year, I, I did some work with an analytics company that that was all about collecting data and understanding the data and, and what it's telling us. Whereas before, I've been working with companies where I'm the only technology person, so I'm I'm collecting the data, I'm setting up databases, I'm designing and, and building applications as well as working with larger technology firms where there are entire divisions of the company that is, is all about collecting, massaging, and, and understanding data. There's a big change and a big shift when there are dedicated individuals that are in charge of the data and analyzing the data, as opposed to, I'm just in charge of collecting the data and making sure that it's stored over there for safekeeping. What are the differences in just a pure data collection and data analytics and, and understanding and, and those types of things?
2: That's a loaded question, uh, but a good one, John. You know, one of the things I've been learning here is in in the industry over the past 20 some odd years is that you have to be able to adapt because roles quickly become merged. And what you learn very quickly is there's some things that you're really good at. There's some things that you suck at. There's some things that you really, really want to do that you're good at. And there's some things obviously that, you know, you really shouldn't do because <laughs> you suck at it. <laughs> and you probably don't want to do them because you know that you're not very good at it. And I've learned that when we talk about the different roles that, that deal with data, that you, you could start to see the line being drawn. If you think about this whole idea of machine learning and artificial intelligence, AI has a lot of, it covers a lot, but again, it centers around data. And there's many aspects of what you need to do, like you, like you said, right? There is being able to get that data and process it and do something with it. And there's being able to understand that data. And then there's being able to interpret the, the future of that data, right? And, there, and there's different facets of it. But one of the key things that I'm, I'm learning, when you deal with machine learning, that deals with a lot of math, numbers crunching, and eventually predicting some type of result. What data scientists tend to worry about is they tend to worry about that line and the math behind it, and they tend to amaze themselves over how they came up with that line, how they figured out those coefficients, and how they, you know, they cleaned some data from this part, and they did a trick over here with this algorithm, and they, they looped it over here with some other algorithm, and they substituted the variables to present the equation to get that line. And they marvel at it because in reality, it's, it's math. It's intensive and you got to know what you're doing because if you tweak the wrong coefficient, the whole thing blows up and you got to start all over. But one thing that data scientists tend to not be so good at is provisioning their environment to be able to run their math systems, right? If you think about that, it's like, they need all of the smarts to be able to type in the commands. But then it's like, okay, well, you should have the smarts to be able to install Anaconda. Just give me a system that has Anaconda already on it. So Anaconda being a, a library that data scientists use, right? Well, you should be able to install Python. Yeah, just I, I could do it, but you know, if you can already provide me the environment for that, that would be great, right? Okay, what about Art Studio? It's just double click. You just install, click on the executable, click next a few times, and then it installs. Yeah, that's good. But you know, if you already have a system that has it on it, I could just load my my data up there and I can just do what I got to do. You realize that the data scientists are not very, they don't want to do that stuff. They don't want to figure out how to get data loaded from one system into another system. A lot of times they don't even care about cleaning and transforming the data, right? They just want it in one spot. They want to be able to grab it, run their reports, run their analysis, figure out their equations, figure out the coefficients, do their training, create their model, and they're done. And it's very specific tasks that they're interested in doing. But think about everything that happens before and after. So once a data scientist has figured out what that algorithm is and what that model is and what the coefficients are, how do you package that and put it inside of the next latest and greatest Facebook app that runs on your cell phone? And are you concerned with the performance? Because you got a great model, but the minute you send three values to it, it takes 15 minutes to run to give you the answer. That's never going to work in a request response world. If I'm on Progressive's website and I'm trying to get the latest insurance, I'm not going to sit there and wait 15 minutes for the quote, right? I'm going to go to (laughs) Geico because they can give it to me right away.
0: That's why they have you enter in your username and your password and your email address so that they can collect all that stuff, run their algorithms, and then send you an email in the next day or two.
2: Exactly, exactly. So all of that to say that the person who has to figure out how to make it performant from when it runs in production, how to package it, that's a role. The person who has to figure out the environment and get it all set up and make sure the environment is constantly running, that's a role. And what's interesting about those roles that I'm kind of bringing to light right now is, believe it or not, that's not a database administrator, nor is that a IT engineer or infrastructure administrator. The reason why it's not a DBA role It's simply because DBAs, they don't know Hadoop. They don't know Apache Spark. They don't necessarily know Python, right? They know SQL query language. They know indexes. They know tables. They know dimension tables. They know, you know, OLAP cubes. (laughs) But outside of that, that's in the database relational world, right? They may even know non-relational databases, maybe. But a DBA is focused on the performance of the database engine, the relational database engine, nine times out of 10. The, the performance of a query, nine times out of 10. The high maintenance and high availability of the database servers, which ties into the IT engineer. They're focused on the performance of the server that your code is running on. They're concerned with space. They're concerned with RAM. They're concerned with network and firewall and security settings. So that means that there's a gap. There's a gap of missing capabilities and features where someone needs to help the data scientists get to the point where they can run their models and their algorithms and figure out the coefficients. And there also needs to be somebody that understands that when you put this environment up, this is this is an experiment or workspace environment not meant for production. This is a production environment that allows you to to basically run your models as fast as possible to get the answers for prediction capabilities and everything that is centered around how we get the data moved from point A to point B for the data scientist. That's what I like to call that, that data engineering role, right? They, They have that task and it's hard. It's hard for enterprises to really pick up that this is a new world and this is actually a new role that's, that's, Developed because of data that has happened because of AI.
0: Is it a new role because more and more companies are seeing the value of understanding the data that they have, understanding that they need to collect more data that can tell them even more about their customers, their users, their systems? They've probably already decided that they need a DBA. They probably have a DBA. They probably have a staff of engineers making sure that their applications are running that their network is strong, that they can fulfill any request that any potential customer or client is making of them. Is that data engineer role new as a sign of the times that, that we as an industry are evolving and, and, and answering the call to the needs that we didn't know we
2: had? I think it is. Yes. But what I, what I think what a lot of enterprises fail to realize is even though this is a new role, I don't think it necessarily has to be a new person, right? Again, that's kind of what I started with, you know, we have to learn how to adapt, right? And And roles change and you have to know how to be able to move with the times. And so to me, a DBA can very easily take on this role if they start to learn the new modern practices, if they want to learn the The non relational database structures that they want to learn a little bit about big data and Hadoop and Python and R, and, and they want to know a little bit more of the ETL as it deals with analytical and statistical analysis, not just ETL to move data, but ETL to move it efficiently and without touching it for raw consumption of models, right? Things of that nature. You could repurpose. You know any SQL developer or any SQL DBA, if they so choose. But if that that person doesn't choose that, then yeah, this could be a new person. You know, if you want to bring somebody in off the street that has focused and worked closely with a data science team or a machine learning team, because you know I happen to work closely with doctors. And doctor, these doctors are the research fiends. I call them research fiends because they were pulling out just blobs of reports of, and when a person does this and they do this and their eyes do this and their eyebrows do this and that and they twitch in and it means all of this stuff, right? And they're all numbers. It's, it's based off of how many inches a face moves or dimples in or and it's all data.
1: Let's say I'm a company and I'm, and I, I've realized that I have this, this need. There's this hole in my organization that needs this data engineer. What kind of job description would there be for that? It's, cause it's not, it's not a standard role at this point. So it's, it's, you know, who are you looking for like when, when you put out an ad for this, for this role?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I've been in a couple of conversations already more recently than not. I'm both at Microsoft and um, at JM on two different occasions for two different things that deal specifically with job descriptions for like a data engineer, right? And it's it's not easy because I, I think what you learn is the definition of a data engineer is still being worked out and played through all the major corporations, right? Microsoft. Um, piggybacks off of AWS, AWS, piggybacks off of Google, Google piggybacks off of Microsoft, right? Just this nice little circle of of industry, uh, corporate company life. And what you'll notice here, the the description that I would come up and that I've provided feedback to various different teams is, so a data engineer has to, number one, be able to understand um, the data, Right, they have to be able to understand the structure of the data, both structured and unstructured data. They have to understand the flow of the data, where it comes from, where it goes to. They have to be able to be able to transform data and know when to transform the data. Right, and, and so you have your typical ETL type of developer that winds up being one of the core assets or core features of what a. Um, data engineer, but it's much more than ETL work because now it's also a little bit of data architect work. It's understanding now, okay, well, certain types of data are only going to fit a certain type of model. Relational data fits well in a relational model. Non-relational data not well in a non-relational mo- in a relational model. So then now. Because you are be, you'll are you be working with multi-mode databases or repositories, relational and non-relational, now you have to understand how to extract it and know what the kinks are, right, what the, what the constraints are for relational versus non-relational. Because again, remember, performance is also important. So once you understand the constraints, now you have to understand the flow. You know, does it make sense the data needs to be cleaned in one area and not cleaned in another area? And, and then where do you stick all this data? Does it go into a data lake? Does it go into a um, data warehouse or does it go into a lake warehouse? And so it's this idea that understanding that that's, that's one facet of the data architecture in the ETL. But then now you have to understand the goal of what you're doing. That's working closely with the data scientists and the data science team. So, You're typically doing this for analytical reporting, you're doing this for statistical analysis, and you're doing this for data science to build models and algorithms so that eventually they can predict and help upper management make the money that they need or make the decisions that they need to keep making the money and keeping the business thriving. So the the data engineer role is a mixture of an ETL developer with a data architect with this developer background that knows how to connect everything up, provide the environment, and yield the the purposeful environment for a, a machine learning expert or a data science expert to be able to keep their job running. And that's the beforehand, because then you have the after side, which is how do you package and prepare everything that the data science did to productionalize it? So you also have that productionalizing aspect of a data engineer. So to me, that's a full gamut. That's a lot.
1: Yeah, that's that's a complex role. I mean, given that, I might, even, I might even suggest splitting it into two roles. You'd have like data engineer and data ops.
2: Possible. Possible. As a matter of fact, there's this thing called ML ops. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it, machine learning ops, which is a little bit different from DevOps. In, in my mind, it's DevOps for machine learning. But it, I mean, it's this idea that the productionalizing of a data science algorithm is more into just spinning up a Kubernetes cluster and then going, oh, it's working, right? I mean, yeah, that's, that's a key portion of it, but what if your company doesn't support Kubernetes? If that is the case, then how else do you productionalize the ability of running a machine learning module or model in such a way that it can stay performing in a production system? So now you got to get creative. And you have to come up with more than just, you know, building a pipeline that spits out a Kubernetes cluster. Um, you're right. It could definitely be a whole nother role or another team or another group that that's doing the productionalization. But I guarantee you, the data engineer they're involved in that discussion.
0: And that brings up a, a point that you said something a little while ago that that really stuck out at me. That. Before I was thinking, OK, well, we have a lot of data. We we stuffed it into a data lake and there we go. Now we're off to the races. But it's more about understanding the needs, understanding the requirements, figuring out what what needs to happen and, and how we need to structure that data and, and how we need to organize it and, and put it in place where it's useful. What are the questions that a data engineer needs to ask or or what kind of requirements do they need to be able to make those decisions?
2: You know, typically I tell people to start with what's the end goal. First off, let's start with what are we trying to accomplish? So it, and it requires multiple people in the room because you'll get different answers, answers from different people, right? You, if you talk to data science scientists, they'll tell you, oh, I'm trying to find the regression model of, a, you know, X, Y, and Z and get the lowest common denominator of this, that, and the other, right? And you're like, okay, can you Tell it to me in English, right? Because they'll talk in in their terminology to explain a regression model, and you'll have to understand that. So you got to know a little bit of data science to be able to to interpret what they're saying. And then you'll talk to a business stakeholder, and they're going, "Well, we just want to, you know, maximize the efficiency of sales um, whenever we run our our discounts, our weekly discounts." And it could be something that simple, and then now you have to figure out. Okay, maximize. So you hear keywords. So you go maximize sales and discounts. So you have this this reduction of something happening, and this maximizing of something that happens. And they and they want these two together to predict some sale, right? So then you understand that. All right, there's a predictor there, right? So now that you have this predictor and you have this, this data science role in play, they're going to use the uh, regression model algorithm to give you the predictor, right? So as a data engineer, you'll start to add your questions, start to form based off of all the team players asking what, what the goal is, and right? So then you can go back to the business and go... Hey, did you know that, you know, we, even though we found your, we figured out how to maximize your sales, but did you know that you don't even have to do the discount if you do this other factor over here, right? And then you start to ask new questions that gets the business to become even more innovative. And then you can go back to the data scientists and go, you know, we, you know, we, we got your predictor, right? We, we got the, the lowest um, error threshold to figure out the best predictor here. But now can you figure out there's some other patterns? Can you give me, you know, some other uh, K-means cluster design to tell me something else that you might see that the system can figure out, right? And, and those two basically are the combination of both sides of that first scenario, that second scenario I just mentioned, right? So the clustering or the pattern recognizing provides the way to tell the business, hey, we've identified a pattern that if you, you know, change the car color to blue, let's say, that gives you better sales, regardless of the discounts. So the questions come from talking to both sides of the business and interpreting what the technical data scientist team is is talking about, as well as interpreting the end goal of what the the business wants to do. So you have to talk. And a lot of times what I've learned is that they don't, right? We kind of stay too focused on one side or the other, but we never have this guy that knows how to interpret the middle ground layer. The only catch there is, I don't know if the negotiator or the interpreter is the role of a data engineer or not, because if that is true, then the data engineer now has to know more about data science.
1: That's a lot of data stuff going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> data is one of those one of those things that I've I've generally stayed away from. I never I never enjoyed writing SQL queries, so I kind of just backed off from and. Now it's just exploded into strange symbols and the computer's telling you weird things that you don't understand how it got that idea. And then companies are making, you know, decisions based off of that. It's, it's neat, but uh, a little confusing for me. So with the, with the uh, data engineer role still sort of being defined and, and maybe being a, a solid, uh, known role in the next, uh, couple to, you know, maybe three to five years. What do you think might happen next as far as maybe training or, or even the evolution of that role? You, I mean, you've already mentioned that, that it might branch out into um, several positions. Uh, is there anything
2: else that you've kind of been rolling around in your head? So there's either one or two possible things that's going to happen. I'm going to go to both extremes here. Either the world is going to continue down the approach that it is with COVID and the pandemic and 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 you know all the governments come crashing and computers are going to just like stop. Or <laughs> the computers are going to be more of an assistance with helping define what the roles are. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can see data scientists, you can see data engineers working together to go, hey, let's run an algorithm to actually delineate what everybody does. Run a computer to figure out, you know, run an algorithm to figure out who can do what the fastest and who should do what, where literally the computer determines the definition of a data engineer, right? Because we're not too far away from this idea of, you know, the citizen IT um, developer, you know, the power user, the user that can drag and drop their way to success, right? They can use a tool or a platform like, power, Microsoft power platform. And, you know, they can build reports, they can get just as fancy as a DBA could, write the query or just as you know creative as a data scientist can predict right with some of the algorithms that are there and some of these these widgets and controls that are in the power platform and there's other platforms outside of microsoft right there's the salesforce platform that can do the same type of thing um and and they're they're all there so the question becomes now if if we're empowering computers to be smart enough to pattern figure out the pattern of who does what the fastest, and also empowering computers to not only figure out who does what the fastest, but how it's done the fastest, then we can automate the computer to do it even faster. Which means now that the computers, you know, get into this automation of of building the app for us. They get into this automation of deciding what structures, be it relational or non-relational, should it use, which storage options, should it choose, and eventually connecting the dots, then the role of the developer and the role of the engineer, again, has to adapt and it has to change. Now, what that future looks like, you know, I'll let my, my daughter's answer that one, because hopefully I'll just be, you know, sitting in a rocking chair going, yeah, I helped program that thing. <laughs> 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 but uh, in reality, um, you know, all jokes aside, the, the future, with data science and data engineering is, is a bright one if uh, we put guardrails around it and it becomes clear and we delineate the roles of each and make it very clear. Because, you know, I think for the most part, data scientists do a heck of a job trying to figure out the math. And I think data engineers have to do a heck of a job trying to figure out how it all is going to work and fit together at the end of the day. And the business does a heck of a job, you know, figuring out new ways to innovate the, the business and maximize, you know, the profits. So I think it's, it's a big family and, and it all needs to work together and it can. And the future is really a bright one, especially if you're into AI and data science and you're into data engineering and you're into big data. It's, it's definitely the way forward. So we've, we've talked about a, a number of different
0: topics. Are there any particular resources that come to mind if there are those interested in, in learning more about data science, uh, database development, data engineering?
2: Yeah, good great question. So resource-wise, if you're trying to follow the Microsoft platform, the data platform, Microsoft has a ton of resources out there. Um, if you go to, I think it's uh, microsoft.com slash learn, um, they have, you know, some examples and free tutorials that talk all about, you know, the the Microsoft data platform. And so when we say the Microsoft data platform, it's a mixture of technologies, right? It's the Cosmos data platform. It's, it's artificial intelligence. It's cognitive services. It's SQL. Can't forget about SQL, right? And it is just the plethora of how do you get data in and out of the system and what are the tools that you use to get the data and then from a data science perspective, what are the tools that you're going to be using to you know learn data science which is typically you'll have to learn like languages like Python and R uh, those are the top most common data science programming languages and then you'll use um, a framework called anaconda which is um, a set of data science libraries that run on top of Python and has a bunch of other um, libraries, such so as H2O and TensorFlow, Google's TensorFlow. Um, and if you're coming from like a different, if you're coming from outside of Microsoft and doing like Amazon, it's Amazon SageMaker. Amazon has a, a plethora of machine learning tools and tool sets. Um, I don't know if they have a, like a data platform like, like Microsoft and Azure does, um, but they do have a lot of tools that you can play around with. Okay. So the resources are there and they're free download them, use them, and start getting to them. And the minute you want to do something fancy, that's when you got to pay.
1: (laughs) What words of wisdom or advice might you give to uh, someone just getting started in the industry, or maybe uh, they've been in the industry for a little while, but they want to kind of get their career really going and, and move up to that next level?
2: That's a good question. So if you like math, and you like crunchy numbers and you like the element of surprise and understanding how different algorithms behave, then data science is, is where you want to focus your attention. If you're more enthusiastic about how systems talk and how, to, how they communicate, integrate with each other, and how your system will be used in a data science platform, then data engineering is kind of where you want to be. If if you're more interested in just being able to build everything from end to end and just kind of understanding the, The technology behind everything end to end. And I would say development in general is probably where you want to you want to start. So and then, of course, anything outside of that, there's all the other fields that are out there. So, you know, the way I'm coming from it, I'm coming from it from a more technical deep end. So I'm looking at it with a developer lens in my in my purview. And what that means is I'm going to look at the technical details. I want to understand how it all fits. I'm interested in how it all kind of gauges and how they all work together. Not so much the the algorithms and the math. So I don't really focus that much on the data science side of it, even though I've taken a number of courses, including that Caltech course, Learn From Data. Um, I've taken that one. And let me tell you, the math is no joke.
1: (laughs) And do you have any social media accounts that uh, you might want to share so that someone can either follow you or maybe even reach out to you to discuss more about uh, data engineering?
2: Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, just look for Dwight Goins. I also have a Twitter account. My handle is dngoins. Um, I think that handle pretty much exists almost in every platform. Um, D-N-G-O-I-N-S is, is the handle. All right, Dwight, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you, John and Clayton, for having me on. Hopefully you get some viewers and get some good feedback. That was Dwight Goins.
0: Dwight is an industry luminary focused on artificial intelligence, computer vision, machine learning, augmented and mixed reality, IoT, and emerging user experiences. He is the chief algorithm officer of Thoth Speed Engineers, senior advisor to Ned Tech Inc., as well as an application delivery manager at JM Family Enterprises.
1: If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton
1: Hunt. And I'm John Ash.